Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Hi everyone, Garlahiv, welcome back. Uh, this is the fourth in our series on before, during, and after, and the third for us to hear from Mushki Katlarski and Rifki Bayarski RN. Tonight we will conclude this topic by discussing navigating the postpartum period. I'd like to just take an opportunity to um, thank Mushki and Rifki for doing three sessions in a row. That is not easy at, on any stretch. Um, but they have so much to share with all of you, and um, I know I'm gaining, so I hope you are too. I'd like to um, encourage anyone who's watching this, if you are not currently following us at I at my mikvah on Instagram, mikvah.org on Facebook, or joining our broadcast on WhatsApp, you can message me at 732-534-2948 to be added to that broadcast. We're going to address all questions tonight at the end of the class. The way you can um, have your questions addressed is either in Facebook or in YouTube. There's a comment box and you're welcome to post it there if you'd like. Um, if you want it to be anonymous um, or if you don't have a chat box, because if you're watching it off our website, you don't, um, you can message the question to me, 732-534-2948, and we will address all questions at the end of the presentation. First, we will begin with Mushki Kalarski, who will be discussing the hashkafa and practical tips on navigating the postpartum period. So, uh, welcome, Mushki. Hey, thanks. Okay. Nice to be back again. Um, okay, so first of all, a uh, big shout out to everyone who has tuned in all three times. It's a lot. Um, and we're now up to the postpartum stage. So, Mazel Tov, you had your baby, and this is something that's incredibly special and powerful to just think about that you brought a child into this world. However the birth went, however the pregnancy went, you're past that now, and now the baby is born. And this is something that is just incredible to take in and to appreciate what this means. And we have so much in Yiddishkeit that talks about the value of parents simply because they brought this life into the world. And one of the first things that comes up is that it says that parents get a special Ruach HaKadosh when naming their child. And we spoke last class about, you know, in the end of pregnancy or throughout other points in time, discussing general naming ideas with your spouse. So you're on the same page and you have a general um, path that you're planning to go in. But then once the baby is born, there's a special Ruach HaKadosh. It's something that only the parents get. It's not someone else doesn't go and name your kid for you. It's a name that has to come from the, Ruach of that child that and the parents get tuned into that because they brought this kid into the world. So it's not something that, you know, family pressure has to take up into play or some other um, outside source. It just listen to what comes from inside, what makes sense. And that's the name that you choose for your child, because that's the name that the child really has. And you get to be in tune and find out what that is and formally give that name. 
So for a girl, you're going to be get naming our minogis to name the baby at the first possible opportunity, the first Kriya. Um, other communities might have different minhagim about it, about waiting to Shabbos or waiting five days or whatever it is, but the Chabad minog is that we name the baby girl at the first opportunity. So sometimes that could be when you're um, immediately after birth, as soon as you're in the hospital. Um, sometimes um, it might be a few days later, depending on when Kriya is. So then we run into, and this happens with boys also, that sometimes you feel pressure to write a name on the birth certificate before the baby was officially named in Yiddishkeit. So how do we navigate that scenario? Um, we have a few options. Sometimes it, you can ask you know, to push it off a few days and depending on the hospital or the midwife or however it works in your area, that might be something that's not a big deal. Like let's say they submit the paperwork at the end of the month anyway. So they say, oh, just email us when you decide the baby's name. And it's not a big deal. Sometimes there is a pressure to put something down. In that case, speak to your own rubber mashpia. Um, it's not, it's not a hundred percent a no to put the name down before you give the name. It's better not to call the baby by the name, just to write it down and not to say it. There's also something about the wife doing it, not the husband. So it is possible to do. Um, but generally, we try that until the baby is named. We don't we don't say the baby's name. We don't tell other people like, oh, we're going to name the baby this. We don't call the baby by their name until they're officially given the name by Amisha Berach, by the Torah, or for a boy, by their bris. Um, so that's with giving the baby's name. Then what comes next? So for a girl, um, at some point, it doesn't have to be right after the baby's born. It could be at another point. We make a kiddush. And a kiddush is to thank Hashem for giving us this bracha, for giving us this child. Um, we mentioned last class they were going to be adding a special Shabbos candle in honor of the new child because they bring a new light into your family. So we really want to celebrate the child, and we're thanking Hashem for that. There's also an Indian that when you make a Kiddush, people come and they say Mazel Tov, and they give the traditional bracha that may you raise her L'tayra L'chuppa This is something that's unique to our community. Other places they say Tayra L'chuppa L'maizim for boys, and for girls, just chuppa But Chabad, we say l'tayra because girls are also going to be raised l'tayra. That's the bracha that we give. There's also an association to when we give the bracha l'chuppa, that that helps the girl later on in her life with getting married. And that's why some people have, um, that if a girl's having a hard time with a shidduch, some people are accustomed to make a kiddush so that people will say, so it's something that does carry on significance throughout life. So for a girl, that's the way that we mark this girl's arrival into the world. For a boy, there's a Shalom Zachar. Shalom Zachar, as far as I know, doesn't really have um, any specific um, roles or obligations for the mother or for the baby. It's just something that happens where, again, people are wishing brachas and welcoming the child into the world the first Friday night. Shalom Zachar is held even if, um, you know, sometimes there's a Friday night when you can't eat, like Yom Kippur, for example, or um, if it's Pesach after the Seder when you're not eating, but the minig is still to have a Shalom Zachar that people come over and do this welcoming thing Friday night. So that's for a boy. And then we come to having a Kriya Shema for the baby. Our minog is that we do the Kriya Shema the night before the bris. 
you have children come over and say Shema. There's also some other psukim that they say. Our is also, we say the 12 psukim. It's all written out very nicely in this book, Sheva Chabris, you have it in your house. Then comes time for the Kriya Shema. You just open it up and read whatever it says there. It's very easy for what the kids to say, Hamal Chagayel, and a few things. So that's something that you're going to be doing the night before the bris. It's also called the Vachnacht, which means it's the night that, to watch the baby. Um, there's things that the father does to stay up and to read certain parts of Zahar, but again, not really relevant for the mother so much. And then comes the bris. Um, bris is a very significant milestone. And it's really the first mitzvah that the baby gets to do. And it's a really big schuss that the parents get to do that, to bring the baby to the bris at eight days old. And we're very careful to do a bris on time. And because the eighth day is a very special time. It's a time when Yitzchak had his bris and it's a very significant thing. But sometimes the eighth day is not the right time for that baby to have a bris. That baby has to have a bris later for a medical reason usually, but there's a reason that the baby has to have that bris later. And the Rebbe says that whenever that baby is supposed to have their bris, that becomes the eighth day. So if you're not delaying for convenience purposes or anything like that, you're delaying because we're waiting for the baby is ready, according to when the male and the doctors will say the baby is ready, that is called considered giving on the eighth day. And it includes all of the special significance of like Yitzchak and everything of having it on the eighth day. Um, so when the baby has their bris, there's a lot that goes on. You're honoring many people. You're honoring a kvater. You're honoring a sandik, which will has a very significant um, role in the child's life spiritually. Um, there's a few things that go on during a bris. I'm not going to get into all the details. Again, it's something you could look up in a sefer like Shevach bris, or you could ask for guidance from your own rav. It's usually something that I've seen that the men deal with more is planning the actual bris. I did want to take a few minutes to talk about it from the female perspective. That when you give birth to this child, the instinct is to do everything you can to protect the child. And it can be difficult to hand your baby off to go through a painful experience and to witness the baby in pain. And it's something that doesn't mean that you don't value the mitzvah. It's just a natural instinct to want to protect your child. And that's something that is positive and a healthy thing. So what I found to be helpful and what women try to consider is that this is what you're doing is not something harmful, but what you're doing is something that has incredible gain and benefit to the baby. And while they might not understand what's going on, you are the person, you're the parent. They rely on you to get everything that they need in life. And they rely on you to do things for them, even that might not be pleasant. We do things for our children for their benefit because we're the ones that make the choice. That child will never have a chance later to have their bris on the eighth day. They're looking at you, the parent, to do that and to make that choice for them and to give them that mitzvah. We need to give it to them. And we do so many things for our kids that might be unpleasant um, or difficult or even at least in the United States, when a baby is born, you have to do um, basic blood work that they test for like genetic um, different things. And that's like across the board mandated test. It's usually done with a heel stick. It's not such a big deal, but it's a big deal. 
I've seen it happen to one of my kids. It took um, a lot more crying and pain than the bris did. But it's something that we do because it needs to be done because it's important for the baby's health. So when we put that into perspective that yet kids go through things, but us as parents, we're the ones to do it for their benefit. And then that cry when the baby has the bris, it's such a connection to Hashem. Because Hashem says, that you're going to live by this. This is the bond. They're entering the bris of Avram Avinu. And it's because we did that for them. We gave that them this mitzvah and this connection by making this bris. So it's something very um, special and significant. And it's really an amazing thing for a mother to do. Uh, some people have the custom that the mother doesn't come to the bris just because it's so difficult to hear the baby cry. But to to really think about what it means and how significant it is, it's actually a very beautiful moment to be there and to appreciate. And then when it comes to taking care of the baby after the bris, um, sometimes it could be a little bit, you know, squeamish or uncomfortable, or people want, you know, somebody else to be taking care of the baby or taking care of the diapers because you don't want to see that. But if you think about it, again, you're, you're a really powerful and, you're a powerful, composed woman who brought this child into the world and brought them to the bris of Avram Avinu. And now part of that comes along with taking care of the baby and bathing them however or whenever necessary and changing the diapers and taking care of those things. And it's not something to be afraid of or to feel like I'm incompetent, I can't do it, I need my mother, I need my sister. It's really nice if someone offers to help and they wanna help you with your baby. That's lovely, that's wonderful. And if you wanna pass on that responsibility, that's your choice to do. But it's not this scary, overwhelming, and impossible thing to handle or take care of or everything around the bris. Sometimes it just seems so scary, but if you break it down, it's really something that um, when taken for what it is as a mitzvah and as an opportunity, and then, so there's, there's the little, you know, wound care afterwards, and that's all part and parcel of what we're going through. So that's just a little bit about the bris. There's also an Indian that at the time of the bris, we take money and we give it as like a down payment almost towards the child's chinuch. We give it to a yeshiva. Doesn't mean you have to send your kid to that yeshiva when they grow up, but you give it to a yeshiva that you're already starting to pay for the child's chinuch. From the bris, from when they get their name and they join bris, you're already giving for their, for their chinuch. Um, another thing that, again, this is individual of when it's happening, but for a woman, the first time you're leaving home before you're leaving home for random errands or whatever you're taking care of before you leave home the first time to go to shul, or at least hear a minion. Again, this is if possible, I understand now with COVID and everything, it's not necessarily possible for every single person, but the Indian generally is that you should hear Kedusha or at least Baruchu. From a minion and answer Baruch Hu Baruch Shemai before continuing on and going on um, with your daily life and daily routine. So the first trip is to a shul. Sometimes it's the same time as the bris, and during the bris you'll answer Baruch Hu, you know, beforehand. If people are davening, you'll do Baruch Hu or whenever it is. But it's something to keep in mind at some point. For some people, it's two days after I have the baby, they're doing it. For some people, it's a month later. But at some point, you want to before continuing with your regular. Going out, your first trip is to a shul to your birth. Um, 
Then comes a pidyon aben, which is something that doesn't necessarily apply to all people. A pidyon aben is pretty specific. It has to be a baby boy that's the firstborn to um, Yisraelim. The parents have to be Yisraelim, not the Kohanim or Levim. And it has to be the firstborn from a natural birth. So when that situation happens, you get an opportunity to do the mitzvah of Pidyan Aben, of redeeming this child. Since they're the firstborn, they would be potentially a Kohen, and you have to redeem them to be a Yisrael and you know, buy them back from the Kohanim. And that's a special mitzvah that we do on the 30th day of the baby's life. And it's a special opportunity. People make a Sudasa mitzvah. There's a lot surrounding that also. That's also a milestone moment in the beginning of the postpartum um, thing that will apply in some cases. Then let's move on to, in general, taking care of the chinuch of the child. Chinuch of the child starts, like we said before, before birth, when you're just even thinking about having a child or preparing for the concept of a child coming into the world from the time of conception, throughout pregnancy, from the moment of birth itself, we're always prioritizing the chinuch and the surroundings of this child. We know that every single thing that happens has an impact on this neshama and on everything they're taking in. There's a lot of things from the Rebbe about this. I could go on and on. In general, chinuch is huge. But there are certain things that are particularly um, mentioned for newborns. One of them is that we get an ois besay for Tyra right away. There are, there's a children's Tyra that's written in Eretz Yisrael, and it's made up of every single letter is, belongs to another Jewish child. You get this letter as soon as the baby's born and the baby has a name, you sign that baby up for a ois besay for Tyra, and you'll get a certificate with the baby's name saying that they have a ice, and I think it says what parsha it's in. Um, so we do that right away. It's nice to do it either in the same room as the baby or even holding the baby to take care of it on behalf of the baby as soon as possible. Also registering the child in Tzavz Hashem, which is the Rebbe's um, army that the Rebbe created of children that are there to be in the army of Hashem. So we want to take care of that as soon as possible. Once we have a child that we can add to this army to register the child in Tzavz Hashem. The Rebbe was also very, very um, into the idea of surrounding a child with only kosher images. And this includes animals specifically, that there should be only kosher animals. We shouldn't have non-kosher animals or any signs of tumma around. That means on the baby's clothing and toys and any banners or things that you have motifs on the baby's, um, any baby gear that you have, if you have a baby swing or whatever it is, it should have only kosher animals. That's something that we're careful about. In general, at the baby's space, even if the baby doesn't have a decorated room, a dedicated room, but the baby's space um, should be a mikdash ma'at. And we should have in it, we should have a tzedakah pushka that the parents give tzedakah to on behalf of the baby, that this is the baby's tzedakah pushka, a siddur that again, that the parents can read from on behalf of the baby, that this is this child's little mikdash ma'at, their little holy dalit amas that they are existing in. Um, as far as chinuch goes, there's an Indian to say, Maida'ani with the baby. There's also an Indian of washing nekobas around a baby. Um, saying psukim is something that a lot of people like to do. Um, to say Shema at night. And the Rebbe says to sing Jewish lullabies. Lullabies that talk about Tyra is the best to that 
Torah is the best merchandise, that teach Kamat that teach the kid in general. There's so many things from the Rebbe about surrounding a child with only positive and pure messages. And everything we should bring in is something that we could consider, does this add to my child's Yerushalayim or not? What is this? What am I putting around them? That's why um, people create all of these beautiful toys and accessories and little hanging mobiles with, you know, stuffed Tyra's on it, or all this stuff is to surround a child. There's the little bumpers with the pictures of Rabbeim to keep the kid around as much Kedusha as possible. And of course, like we mentioned last time, that little Shira Malay's card that we want to have for the first 30 days, um, both on the outside of the house, on the door of the house and inside the baby's crib. So that's in general, as far as the baby's surroundings and what you're keeping around them. And someone asked me a question last class, after last class, which um, I think speaks to a much broader idea. She said, I know you're supposed to say Maida'ani with your baby, but when do you even say Maida'ani when you have a newborn and there's no morning and there's no night? When do you do Maida'ani, Shema, all of these things? So that's a very good question. And I think that brings a lot of things into play that we have, we have a baby and we have all of these expectations and ideas of what we're going to do and how we're going to live. And then it's like, okay, now practicality, you have a baby. It's very different than, uh, you know, just going about your daily life, just with a little accessory called a child. There's a lot more that goes into it to being a postpartum um, parent person and to be a mother to a new baby, whether it's your first child and there's that whole adjustment of now being responsible for another human being and then being completely dependent on you or whether or not it's not your first child, but it's the whole family adjustment in the house and having to take care of the other children while also tending to the baby and also the fact that you're a postpartum mother. So there's a lot of adjustments to be had. And one of the key things is to, to keep in mind, to keep in mind that nothing goes as planned. And that is the plan postpartum to go with the flow, not to have high expectations for yourself that, well, after the last baby, after two weeks, I was cooking supper. How come right now it's so hard for me to cook supper? Well, you're in a different situation now. You had a different birth and baby is different and everything is different. And even if everything seems the same, it's still different. And you don't have to have these high bars for yourself and be disappointed if things go one way or another way. So practically, yes, you would like to have some kind of routine in your life. You would like to have nighttime, daytime, morning, that even if the baby's been up since 2 a.m. at some point, we say, oh, it's morning, and we open the shades, and we say, my da'ani, and maybe we change our clothes even, and it's morning. And the same thing in the evening, even if the baby's been cranky and doesn't seem like they're going to sleep, say, okay, it's nighttime, we're going to say Shema, we're going to sing some lullabies, because now it's evening, even if the baby is not sleeping through the night, which again, expectations. Newborn baby is not supposed to sleep a whole night. That's not how babies are made. So it's not how Hashem created them to exist. And if we expect that they're going to sleep and they're going to give us a four hour stretch followed by a five hour stretch, that's not how babies are. So we have to be um, open to the fact that this is this stage and we have to be able to adjust to it and be okay with that. And at the same time, realize that Hashem set up a world that we're not supposed to be doing this on our own. We don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. 
And depending on where you live and what your circumstances are and what your family connections are like and what your community connections are like, there are many, many resources out there. And it's something that you should tune into and realize that it's not, um, it's not that there's something wrong to seek support. If anything, that's the way it's supposed to be. So if people are offering help in any kind of way, that's something we should be taking people up on. Take people up on the help, the help that helps you. Again, if it's not something that helps you out, then you don't have to do it. But if there's any kind of support or resources out there, realize that this, this is something that could help me out and it's for the benefit of my entire family. And that we're not expected to be perfect and to feel good and to be healed and to be just great on the top of the world. No, you're a kimpator. You just had a baby. And there's a lot that comes into play with that, with physically, which Rifki's going to get into later. And, you know, the whole halachic side with dealing with mikvah and all of that, that's a whole, all of that aside, you still have yourself, just practically yourself taking care of yourself while you're taking care of a baby 24 seven and dealing with nursing, which could be more or less of a challenge for different people. And again, nursing doesn't have to be the only way. We live in the year 2020, and there's a lot of options for feeding a baby that are best for the mother and the child. You have to do what works for you and what makes sense for your family. And the same thing comes into play with many different aspects of what you're dealing with. And sometimes people don't want to reach out and discuss with other people because they don't want to get advice that they feel uncomfortable following. When people say, oh, just you know, sleep train the baby, but you don't feel comfortable with that because you're nursing on demand. Or people will tell you, um, I don't understand why you don't just give a bottle or I can't believe you're not nursing or any of those kind of things. Try to filter that out and, and you know, not let that affect you. But at the same time, you do want to seek support. You do want to speak to people. You do want to recognize that what you're going through, you're not the first person or the last person to go through it. And it's very normal. And it's okay to not be okay. I'll say it again. It's okay to not be okay. Things might be too much. Things might be overwhelming. This could happen at any point in a person's life that your just emotions and your mental health start going all over the place. But particularly during pregnancy and around childbirth and the postpartum time, our hormones have a really big impact on our mood. And be in touch with that and recognize that. And if something is really coming into play, like maybe physically you feel well enough to do things, but your mood just doesn't let you or the things that you used to enjoy and look forward to are just not things that you enjoy anymore or there's extra anxiety going on and you find yourself repetitively worrying about certain things or checking things or just not being able to relax or whatever it is that's different and that's impacting your life, you can be in touch with that and in tune with that and seek the support because it exists. It exists and it's there to help you out. So be in touch with yourself. It doesn't mean you're weak if you're trying to deal with something. It means you're strong because you're strong enough to recognize that you need some help at this point to be the strongest that you can be. And this is something you can discuss with your spouse beforehand, just to raise awareness that things are going on, to be in touch with yourself, be able to say, I had a really tough day. I've been having a really tough week. For some reason, I can't fight this anxiety. For some reason, I can't shake this heavy feeling. Um, and postpartum depression doesn't just mean things like um, not wanting to connect with your baby or extreme cases, stories that we hear of, of people that really um, 
went through the more extreme examples of postpartum depression. That's not all that it is. It could just be um, when things come into play that make it hard for you to live the life that you want to live and to enjoy the things that you want to enjoy and to, to just function on the level that you should be able to function if your um, mental health was aligned. And yeah, that's different than the regular baby blues and the postpartum ups and downs that people experience and are within the realm of, um, you know, just on the spectrum of something that will go away on its own or deal with on its own or enough self-care will take care of because that's a really important thing to be able to take those steps in your own life to take care of yourself. So yeah, if someone's offering to make breakfast just for you, don't say, what? I don't, I don't need breakfast. Oh, supper for my family. Fine. But I don't need breakfast. Well, why can't someone feed you? You feed everybody else. Why can't somebody feel, feed you? Why can't somebody take care of you? You can go out. You can tell somebody else, I need you to watch the baby. I'm going for a walk. Or if you want, you can take the baby out for a walk. Or whatever you need to do to take care of yourself and be there for yourself. And just think for yourself, what do you need? When was the last time that you hung out with friends or did something for you that was something that you needed for your mental health? And that's something to take into account during this stage when everything is changing. And it's really amazing to see all the letters from the Rebbe where people would write to the Rebbe about what's going on, they had a new baby concerns or whatever it is. And the Rebbe's um, real concern for every single woman and what she's going through and to make sure that she's really okay, really okay on all levels. And to have the support she needs, whether it's, you know, just practical support, like getting meals or getting household help, or whether it's medical support, whether it's guidance, anything that a woman should get what she needs. It's not just about everybody else. It's also about you. You're a person too. And you're not just a person so you can give to others. It's not just fill your cups because you can't pour from an empty cup. It's fill your cup because you're a person. You have to take care of yourself. And I'll say it again, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to reach out for help. These are things that, again, are normal. There's nothing wrong with the person. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Because no one should have to feel like they're falling apart. No one should have to feel that they're all alone and they're overwhelmed and they can't do this. No one should have to feel that way. So if that starts creeping in, try to find out how that can change. So that's what I'll say about that. Another note is that we want to deal with everything that we need to deal with to be strong and healthy people for ourselves, for our families. And again, this is something that we value so much in our community because we live with the Rebbe Sichas about Pru Revu and the Rebbe Sichas on having a large family and doing everything that it takes to put all the pieces of the puzzle together so that we can go on to have more children. And if someone had a traumatic birth or they're dealing with postpartum um, mental health issues or physical things or whatever is coming into play that's making them say, oh, you know what, I don't know when I'm going to be able to have another baby again. Let's do what we can to strengthen ourselves, to seek that support, to seek that guidance, to resolve the trauma surrounding the birth, to make sure that, you know, next time things in pregnancy will go different, to put that plan in place, to be proactive into healing ourselves and getting ourselves to be 
in the place that we are happy and healthy and we're enjoying our life and we're enjoying our children and we're happy to continue to have children and to grow our families with a strong, healthy Shalom bias, again, the role of the husband is very significant and important, but that's different for every single couple and what that means. The main thing is to be open and communicative and to be there to support each other. Um, so I think that's what I'm gonna say for now. Um, I'll pass it on to Rifki, who has um, a ton of very important, valuable information. And I think she's going to take it all the way back to childbirth, where I kind of veered away from that already. So, Rifki, it's all yours. Okay, I'm actually going to continue right where you are because I'm sitting here. Perfect. Yes, Mushki. Go, Mushki. That was awesome. Those were such important um, points. So, yeah, I actually want to go right to the postpartum anxiety, depression, psychosis, OCD, the mood disorders that come with pregnancy, because what a lot of people, I think we may have mentioned this, I don't remember offhand. Uh, I think we may have mentioned this last class that it's extremely normal for this to even start during pregnancy itself. Um, so the statistics, because statistics normalize things for people and you feel that you are one of a very large cohort and that might make you feel comfortable one out of five moms one out of five pregnant women who will have babies or not experience some sort of mood disorder during the process um, these are numbers that are taken from the anxiety and depression association of america by the way in case anyone wants to fact check um, 13 percent of women will have postpartum depression between 3 to 5% of women will have new onset OCD, 9% will have anxiety, 9% will have postpartum PTSD or psychosis. Now, the reason I'm saying this numbers is not because I'm telling you get scared, but rather to say that if you have this, it's extremely normal that you realize, it's extremely important that you realize that these are things that are due to hormonal fluctuations. There's nothing that you did wrong. And it's extremely common and treatable. And it's something that's actually going to be screened rather often within your pregnancy. Um, and you're not gonna realize it. Your first visit, um, once in the second trimester, once in the third trimester, um, immediately postpartum, again, um, by your postpartum visit. And then your pediatrician is actually going to screen you for that as well, when you're going to be bringing the baby in. What's really interesting and what's talked about even less then the mental health issues that a woman may experience due to the hormonal fluctuation is that one in 10 fathers will also experience some sort of mental health disruption as they um, approach fatherhood. And whether that's fatherhood for the first time or fatherhood for the 10th time, it's possible. So we also have to be aware of that as women, when we're talking about mental health, that it's not just the woman's mental health that is adjusting and changing, but it's the entire family. And this could be the father, and I don't have the statistics for the children, but it can also be one of your children. And that's why we talk a lot about, oh, there's a little bit of regression. You see it a lot more in younger kids where they don't want to use the toilet if they were just toilet trained or whatever, um, whatever the case is. It's much more, it's easier to see. Like there's sometimes tension between the siblings as the family adjusts. Um, and those are all mental health related as the family really does do an adjustment. Um, I shared a link with Hasi, and I'm going to ask Hasi to share it with whoever's watching and listening. There is a great resource um, that 
has been compiled. So I always recommend that people go to people that specialize, to providers that specialize in um, mood disorders that have to do with the postpartum or perinatal time period. Um, Mommy Poppins actually compiled a more comprehensive list than mine, so I'm going to share hers. Um, but the Motherhood Center, the Seleni Institute, um, there's a women's program in Columbia. Those are all fabulous, and I've had excellent feedback from all of them. So please use um, the resources, and like Mushki said, there should be absolutely no shame whatsoever. So now we're going to back up. Um, we're going to go to the postpartum period. So you've had your baby. Um, what do you expect in your postpartum, the first 24 hours postpartum? Um, your provider is going to be checking you for certain things. And these are the standard things that are going to be happening. They're going to measure your vaginal bleeding. One of the things that we want to make sure is that you don't chaspichelum have any sort of vaginal hem hemorrhage. So chaspichelum, if there's a little piece of placenta, even a tiny little piece of placenta that is retained in your uterus, that can cause you to continue bleeding. And so we're going to be measuring that. Um, so they're going to be measuring how much you're bleeding and if that's out of the range of normal they're going to take um take action to continue and that's why the nurse or your provider is actually going to be looking at your pads and it's not something that's invasive and it's not something that i would recommend that you skip it's a very important part of the process and how we're going to keep women safe um, if you have a water birth they also measure um, the blood loss within the water um, and the provider who's going to be giving you a water birth is well-trained in doing that as well. So I don't want you to be concerned about that portion either. The other thing that they're going to be checking is they're going to be pushing uh, along the top of your uterus. What they're checking is they're checking if your uterus is contracting within the normal range. Um, they're checking how hard it is or how soft it is, how it feels to them, and that will indicate other potential issues or, you know, in Mr. Shem, it will indicate no issues whatsoever. Um, they're going to take your temperature, and that's because they want to rule out that you're having any sort of infectious process. Um, and, you know, obviously your body has opened in a significant way, and there are tools and people around, and we want to make sure that there was no... Um, infection that was introduced to your body. They're also going to be checking your blood pressure and your heart rate. The reason that your blood pressure is going to be checked is the same reason that we check your blood pressure throughout your entire pregnancy. Um, it's an indication of the fact that your body is responding appropriately. If your blood pressure is high, they're going to monitor it closer um, because I know that um, preeclampsia is something that is very common in pregnancy, but it's very important to be aware that you can also have preeclampsia post-pregnancy as well. In fact, um, your blood pressure, if there's an issue, will peak somewhere around the three to six day mark. So if you're already out of the hospital and you're not seeing your provider, but you feel headachy, you feel dizzy, you feel hot, you feel anything that's out of the normal for you and you're concerned, um, and you have a blood pressure cuff at home, I would say go ahead and check your blood pressure. If not, call your provider. In general, postpartum, if you're concerned at any point, it is a good idea to get in touch with whoever your provider is. So the next um, standardized visit is going to be somewhere between the three to six 
week mark, depending on your provider. Um, a lot of providers um, who do out of hospital births will actually come visit you um, within 24 hours to do those checks that we said generally happen in the hospital. And then their next visit will be somewhere around the three to six week mark. Again, they're going to do a pelvic exam. Now, if we spoke about, not if, we did speak about um, pelvic exams in pregnancy and how you don't really need to have it. Um, I'm going to tell you that postpartum, the pelvic exam is important. We want to make sure that you're healing well, that there's nothing abnormal happening in there. Um, so that's not in the same category as, oh, there's no actual benefit. There's a very strong benefit and strong reasoning to have postpartum pelvic exam. The other thing that your provider is going to be doing at each one of these visits is they're going to do a psychosocial assessment. What does that mean? They're going to make sure that you are in a safe place, that you have the support that you need, um, that your mental health is okay. They're going to assess how you're breastfeeding. They're going to assess how you're connecting with your baby. And these are things that you may not even realize and just in regular conversation, they're happening because we want to make sure that women are adjusting to motherhood, whether it's baby one or baby eight, and they're adjusting to motherhood and having a positive experience. Um, you may contraception, birth control may be brought up at this visit as well. Um, and therefore, before this visit, it's important that you reach out to your RUV and you talk to your RUV about your birth control options, um, if that's something that you want to explore, because it's important to realize that there is a place in halacha for birth control, obviously within the context of Puru, in the context of halacha, but speak to the Rav about your post-birth contraception needs, um, because it you are more fertile after pregnancy and if there's any reason within the framework of halacha that you need to be on birth control whether that's for your emotional health or me mental health or um physical health that's something that you would want to discuss with your personal rep if you had gestational diabetes during your pregnancy um, you're going to be screened again to see if that's something that's going to carry over post-birth at around 6 to 12 weeks. Um, you're also going to possibly get immunizations for DTAP if you didn't get them in pregnancy. Um, and that's all part of the medical aspect of the postpartum period. How long um, should you be staying in the hospital? Nobody loves staying in the hospital. You're not getting rest. Um, you're in a strange environment, in a bed that may not be comfortable, you're not controlling um, the temperature, and you might miss your kids. You know, there's a lot of reasons that we want to get home as soon as possible. The standard is that you're in the hospital for 48 hours for a vaginal birth and 72 hours for a C-section. I will say two things about this. Um, there is some evidence um, it's not the strongest evidence, but there is some evidence if it's a very low risk, non-complicated vaginal birth, there's some evidence that says that you can go home at 24 at 24 hour mark. If you feel that way that you really want to and your pediatrician was able to uh, assume care of the baby and your provider um, signs off on it, that's an option that you can explore if you would like to. I will also say on the other side of the spectrum, that if you 
have a baby in the NICU, and you know that going home will separate you from the baby, you can request to stay longer. And some hospitals will accommodate it if the provider codes things a certain way. I just want you to know that that's an option. Um, and if if that doesn't work for you because your provider is not willing to do that, you can request to speak to social work as well. Not telling you to be a difficult patient, but know your options and make your make your decisions that way. Sorry, my mic was muted for a second. So what can you do to ease your postpartum period? What can you buy in advance? What can you do to support your healing? Um, one of the things that women are given out in the hospital is the peri bottle, and it kind of became the butt of jokes when um, toilet paper was running short at the beginning of Corona. <laughs> at least women know how to use a, a peri bottle, so we're good. Um, but a peri bottle is there so that um, we don't irritate any sort of abrasions, um, any sort of you know nicks or stitches that may have been put on postpartum with rubbing of toilet paper. So you can just rinse the area with a little bit of soap and warm water um, and then dab, 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 and make sure that you are clean. Again, cleanliness is important to make sure that we don't get infection. Another thing that women really um, do find helpful and beneficial is to have some sort of cooling agent. Um, against their vulva area. Um, so what you can do is you can take maxi pads, like the longer pads, put aloe vera on the maxi pads and freeze that. And you have those ready pre-birth so that when you come home, you can just use those as a ice pack, but it's an ice pack that is really soothing. Um, keep that on for 10 to 15 minutes at a time, up to 20 minutes if you feel like you really need it, but that should really um, benefit you. The other thing that you can prepare in advance for the postpartum and make sure that you take it is Arnica pellets. The Arnica will reduce the inflammation and help reduce the pain. Another really, really great tip is that you can actually buy disposable adult diapers. So if you, you know, are worried about the pad slipping or not containing enough, or, you know, just feel more comfortable not ruining underwear with the postpartum bleeding, you can actually buy disposable adult diapers. Um, you can also, another great thing that is helpful to the pain that you may experience in your vulva area is witch hazel. Witch hazel has antiseptic um, properties, which means that it's going to actually prevent infection. So that's a great thing to add to your list of things that you are going to prepare pre-birth. Um, Sneeze pajamas, you are Anita. So make sure that you have Sneeze pajamas. Um, in addition to that, make sure that the Sneeze pajamas have some sort of opening here if you're planning on breastfeeding. So whether that's buttons, whether that's a zipper, make sure that that's part of how you're shopping for things. They actually have on Amazon um, great postpartum nightgowns that have um, like a breastfeeding top that you can buy that as well. Um, 
if you are planning on breastfeeding and you want to get a boppy or um, a breast friend pillow, you can explore that. But you can always buy that again afterwards and until you're ready to invest in that, you can use pillows. In our community, there is a, in our community here in Crown Heights, I should say, because I know people are watching from all over, we have a lot of different support um, for women and we actually have a website, which I will share with Hasi to share with you. Um, and there are meals, breakfast um, from Shifra Pua, which to be honest is enough for breakfast and lunch. Um, there's Yadi Hodis that can take care of dinner. Um, and the community is really great with coming together and supporting each other. Now, if this list that I've given you is not, is a little, you feel it's overwhelming, there's two postpartum kits that I recommend that you can buy online, which is Freedom Mom um, and Earth Mama. They both make those two companies um, make um, postpartum kits that you can buy online. And they have great products that are natural and supportive and will really help you as you start this part of your journey. That being said, I will tell you that the single best ingredient for you to heal postpartum is to rest. Don't worry about the mess. Don't worry about you going out and getting your nails done. Don't worry about if you're not up to taking your baby to the pediatrician, figure out a way for a bubby, um, figure out a way for your husband, figure out a way for someone to help you if you need that help. But rest, 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 and rest. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do for yourself. Stay in your pajamas, stay in your tichel, put your legs up on the couch, get yourself a non-disposable water bottle that you're going to keep refilled, get yourself some healthy treats that you can sit there and snack on. Nuts little sweet things if you're craving it, whatever it is that will give you that little boost of energy. Um, oh, one thing I did forget to mention that's really helpful as you start your breastfeeding journey um, is cooling gel packs that you can actually, that are made specifically for your breasts. Um, and you can put that on there to relieve some of the pressure. So let's talk about breastfeeding. So we just had a baby, Mazel Tov, and we all want to be really fit and back to our postpartum self. Um, but when you're starting your breastfeeding journey, it's not the best time to go on a diet. Breastfeeding takes 500 to 600 extra calories a day. You're burning that just in providing nutrition to your child. So it's very, very important that you consume enough calories so that you can support the healthy development and growth of your baby. Um, sometimes people ask about alcohol and caffeine. Um, so alcohol only stays in your system and can be transmitted to your baby for two to three hours post-consumption. So if you're nursing your baby after that, that's okay. Caffeine, um, studies show that it does not transmit to your baby um, in a way that will bother them. Um, if your baby is a baby that you see gets fussy post-caffeine, then you would explore that option. Um, it's also important, by the way, all of, the, all of this information about breastfeeding is from um, CHOP, the Children's Hospital. Um, so it is fact-based and checked. Um, 
what you can do to help support your breastfeeding journey is to realize that breastfeeding is something that is not going to be the same child to child. It's not going to be, um, there may be bumps along the road and that's okay. The recommendation is that we try to breastfeed for up to six months. The first six months are the most important. So if you're struggling with breastfeeding and you're like, I don't know if I could do this, but I'm at the three month mark. Think to yourself, can I push one more month? Can I push one more week? Obviously, if your mental health is suffering and you're getting anxious and you can't manage, you know, your other children with the breastfeeding, you know, then, you know, explore your options and just make sure that your home is a happy, safe place for all your children and for you and your spouse. But one of the things that you could do to help um, your breastfeeding journey is as soon as you give birth, have the child be put skin to skin on you. So tuck the baby underneath your gown, underneath whatever you're wearing and have the baby directly on you. Um, And then try to initiate breastfeeding within an hour post birth. There are certain hospitals and certain facilities, birthing centers, etc, that are more breastfeeding friendly, and they will be designated as such. So if you're not sure whether that's something that your particular choice of where you're going to give birth is breastfeeding friendly or not. That's a discussion that you can have um, pre-birth. There are certain things that are going to decrease your milk supply. Things like certain cold medications, allergy medications, um, herbs like sage, mint, and parsley. Those are all things that may decrease your milk supply. And therefore, you would want to... um, Proceed with caution when it comes to those things. The other thing that you would want to proceed with caution is fenugreek. Fenugreek is a hit or miss type of thing when it comes to breastfeeding. For some women, it really increases their supply, and therefore it's in a lot of um, teas and supplements that are targeting the breastfeeding mother. Um, But it's hit or miss. So if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, if you're doing, if you're having something with fenugreek and you see the breastfeeding is struggling, try to remove that and see if that kind of adjusts itself um, because it may be the fenugreek. And be patient with yourself. You need to learn how to breastfeed. Your baby needs to learn how to breastfeed. And every single baby has to re- has to learn on their own how to breastfeed. So it's a process. And just because you did it once and you struggled and you got there, you may have to go through that process again. So be really, really patient and be supportive of yourself. Maybe set up a... Um, a little stand next to your rocking chair that you're nursing the baby at night, next to the couch you're nursing the baby at night, and have things there readily available, water bottles, um, trail mix, something that you can read or look at or, you know, recenter and pamper yourself a little bit as you start your journey off with your baby. And never be shy to go for lactation consultant or for help, even if it's baby number eight and you've never needed this before, Don't worry, Um, it's not a reflection on anything bad that you've done or anything negative that you've done. It's just maybe your baby. Maybe your baby has a tongue tie. Maybe your baby has a lip tie. Maybe your baby is sleepy for whatever reason because they're not being fed enough, et cetera. So it's something that you really would want to um, consider going and getting help for.
The other really great resource postpartum is a pelvic floor specialist. So we all hear the jokes all the time. Oh, I pee, I, I pee when I laugh because I've had X amount of babies. Um, and we kind of like, oh, okay, that's normal. I guess there's nothing I have to do about it because that's just kind of been normalized as the norm. So what I want you to reframe in your mind is that your pelvic floor is kind of like a hammock that holds up all your internal like holds up that area of your internal organs. So it's holding up your bladder. It's holding up that portion of your body. So because it's one of those things that is holding up your bladder, therefore, if it's weak due to the stress and the pressure of carrying a child, especially if it's a larger child or, you know, baby number, whatever, it may have put more stress on the pelvic floor. And what you have to do is just strengthen that pelvic floor, make it stronger so that it holds everything in place and makes things more comfortable for you. Um, some of the things that pelvic floor specialists and a pelvic floor um, therapist can do for you is um, help you with issues like urinary incontinence, pain, prolapse, bowel incontinence, separated symphysis pubic. That means that your bones, which um, will have to separate to some degree during pregnancy to allow the passage of a baby, are not coming together in a way that they need to. And you may have trouble walking or moving in certain directions. And that's something that um, your pelvic floor specialist can help you with. When would you start seeing a pelvic floor specialist? Well, ideally, if you had any issues during pregnancy, you reached out to someone at that point. Um, but four to six weeks postpartum would be a great starting point. If you see at four to six weeks postpartum, you're still having issues with any of these things, that's something that you would want to maybe reach out and see if they're ready to see you at that point. And they will ask the pertinent questions to see if you're a candidate for help at that point. Another great resource for any sort of pelvic floor issues is to work in conjunction with a chiropractor. Maybe there's something else that shifted that they can help readjust and repop into place. And um, not all chiropractors are created equal. Some will specialize in, let's say, women, female issues like symphysis pubic pain, and they will really be able to help you with that. Um, when it's going to come after your first mikvah, and we'll talk about the halachic um, portions of all of this, uh, sometimes the beginning of you and your husband coming together in a physical sense post-birth might cause pain, might feel tight, it might feel uncomfortable to you. Um, rem remember, you pushed out a watermelon from something that is yay small. So it's important to know that you need to have patience with yourself. Be kind to yourself as you readjust. Um, in normal circumstances, that pain is going to resolve itself. Use extra lubrication, water-based lubrication. Go slower. Change angles if you need to. Be patient with yourself. And if those things don't resolve the issue, then it's a great time to reach out to your pelvic floor specialist, to your midwife, to your OBGYN, to any of those people who can tell you if what you're experiencing is within the range of normal and you just have to give it more time and be patient, or if you need to um, have a little push and help 
resolve these issues from a different standpoint. I also want to make you aware that the hormonal um, changes that happen through breastfeeding, through being on birth control, through simply being postpartum can change things in the bedroom as well. So keep that in mind as you adjust postpartum. So now we're going to address some of the halachic um, needs of a woman postpartum. Around, so when you, when you are right postpartum, you're bleeding. Around day 10 postpartum, you're going to notice, most women are going to notice some sort of decrease in the heaviness of their vaginal bleeding. If you continue to bleed heavily or increase in bleeding in any sort of way, reach out to your provider and ask if that's something to be concerned about. In general, if you soak a pad an hour at any point, that is reasonable, a reasonable for you to reach out and ask if everything's okay. Do I have to see someone? Is this something that I need to be concerned about? Um, it takes the average woman 17 to 51 days to stop vaginal bleeding. That's three to seven weeks. And that really will depend on you um, and your birth and your own body. So there isn't going to be um, any one standard when it comes to this. I'm not sure where I got cut off, so I'm gonna continue. If you see that you um, are bleeding heavily, um, and you don't feel like it's lightening off, um, aside for rest, which again is the most single, the single most effective thing to help you. Um, you can reach out to people who specialize in this. There are herbs that you can use. Um, someone like Sarah Khanna Silverstein might be able to help you. Um, if you see that you are bleeding dust off before the six-week mark that you're going back to your provider, and you would like to do a hepatitis at that point, that's something that you should call your your provider and ask if it's okay for you to do a hepatitis and do bedikas. A lot of times postpartum, we are in a different zone, and we may not realize that we had stitches, and we may not realize that we have an abrasion, and we may not realize that it's not the best idea to put anything in there. So always clear that with your healthcare provider. That being said, um, some women will want to go to the mikvah because they have a mental health um, concern and they want to be able to um, not have to do harchakis. Um, and obviously you would have to go to the mikvah in order to do that. If there's any sort of issue that you personally think is nagea to you on a personal level, you need to call your rub. There's no, um, you cannot just go to the mikvah just for that reason without speaking to a rub. So it's very important that you do reach out to a rub and there, you know, the rub will obviously be there to listen to you and to support you and to find what works for you within the framework of halacha. So if you feel that you are someone who does need that sort of to reach out to a rub and speak to the rub about the details that are not to that. Um, 
So I know the first class before Mushki and I started spoke a little bit about miscarriage, but I'm going to talk about the halakhic portion of miscarriage. If a miscarriage happens less than 40 days gestation, that means less than 40 days from your mikvah, you will treat it as if, I mean, maybe not emotionally, but for halakhic reasons, we treat it as if it is a regular period. Um, so you're going to do a regular hafsiktara um, after at least five days from when you started bleeding, and you're going to count your shivanakim and go to the mikvah. Um, if you have shalom, a pregnancy loss that is more than 40 days from your mikvah, then you need to make sure that at least 14 days pass from when you started bleeding and became nida until you go to the mikvah. If you have any specific questions about your particular situation, then that's something that you should go and speak to a rav about um, in regards to your particular situation. Um, now addressing the calendar postpartum. The postpartum calendar, you start a brand new calendar postpartum. If you did not have a kavua beforehand, if you had a kavua beforehand, reach out to your rav and ask how to proceed. All the halachas will resume from your first, all the halachas of Aynas will resume from your first postpartum period after birth. Now, one of the very, very large, big misconceptions that people have, and we, um, I have been asked in the past, is do I not have to keep a calendar for the first two years after birth? You absolutely must keep a calendar for the first two years after birth. The significant difference is that you cannot establish a kavua, a set calendar, um, within the first 24 months post-birth, okay? That is the significant difference. However, we are absolutely keeping the calendar um, post-birth. Regarding mikvah postpartum, it is recommended that you do not do your hafzik on a Friday night because we don't want to have a Friday night mikvah postpartum. If you have further questions about your particular situation, um, it is recommended that you speak to your personal rub. When you're going um, through the first cycle postpartum, it is strongly recommended that you review the halakhas of Taras and Mishpacha. Um, you have taken a extended break from keeping the halakhas the way that you did before pregnancy. So it's very important that you review the halakhas and make sure that we're keeping it as we should. Um, a few other things that I do wanna address before we open the floor to questions, and I know we're getting closer and closer to time. So um, I wanna just address that if you are, and this is by the way, across the board, it's not specific to, um, it's not specific to the postpartum period, but I wanna bring it up in case it is relevant. Um, if you or your spouse are sitting Shiva, 
um, you would do your um, Shiva Nikiyam as regular so that we maintain the calendar as it should. And you would not be going to the mikvah unless you spoke to your Rav and there was some sort of um, other case. Now, the minor fast postpartum, it's okay if you feel weak and if you feel like you cannot supply milk to your baby to um, not fast those fasts. When it comes to Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur, it is very important that you speak to your Rav about where those boundaries are for you. Um, and they will depend on a lot of factors that are really not within the scope of this particular class. But I don't want you to feel like you need to push yourself if you feel without asking a rub. If you don't feel like you can do it, it's definitely something that you should speak to your rub about. Um, now, regarding Shabbos and Yantif postpartum, you are a chayla sheyesh besakana. Um, so it's important that you check with your Rav about what that means in your particular situation. Some of the things that is recommended that you speak to your Rav, if you have a baby in the NICU or a baby who's struggling to eat, how are you going to pump for that baby on Shabbos? Can you use an electric pump? Can you use a regular pump? Can, do you have to pump and dump? These are questions that you would address to your Rav. If you're in the hospital, can you use the call bell? Um, how do you ask for help on Shabbos? Can you use electricity? How can you use electricity? Um, food, if they're warming up food for you in the hospital, how do we go about doing that on Shabbos? Um, one of the things that is very important for me to clarify to everyone here, it is extremely important that they take your vitals. So if they're coming to check your temperature, check your blood pressure, do any of those routine checks. Don't say, no, it's my Shabbos. I don't want to do it. Okay. It is important for your health, and that's how we're going to make sure that you're safe to go home and you're safe to continue on forward. So it's very important, and that's how we're going to make sure that you don't have something that has to be dealt with and something that might be a medical emergency. Um, showering on Shabbos. Um, also speak to your Rav if you feel that there's a need for you to do that. That's something that you would discuss with your personal Rav. Last but not least, sometimes post-birth, we want to use pads because the discharge changes down there or maybe your pelvic floor is weak. Um, what type of pads you would be using at what point in your NIDA cycle is definitely something that you should be speaking to your Rav about. And I think that, Hasi, we are ready for questions. Okay. That's, here we go. Let's do this. Okay. Thank you, Rifki and Mushki. That was great. Um, I'm gonna. I want to just address one thing quickly. Is that for an easy postpartum review, like Rifki had mentioned, um, you can go to mikvah.org/slideshow um, after birth. It's an easy way to uh, quickly and easily review the halachas at home when you need that refresher. Okay, I'm gonna ask the question, and either one of you will pipe up. We're pointing to who um, who would like to address it. So first of all. Um, can you address if there's any components that make the postpartum period different now with Corona and COVID? Okay, so I'm happy to take that one. Um, yeah, depending, depending on where you are in the country, there will be different regulations in the hospital about who can and cannot come to your birth. Um, how many people can come to your birth? If you are in a high risk area and people are not coming to support you post birth, you need to prepare for that as well. Because you do need to make sure that you have all the support that you need. Um, 
staying connected just like we're having this class virtually you can stay connected to your support people um virtually as well so you can stay connected to your midwife your doula your postpartum doula your mother your friend that people are doing um lactation consultants virtually all those things can be done virtually and you should take advantage of the opportunity that we have. Um, the second thing is prepare ahead for all the things you need. If you're in a place where it's hard, harder for people to go to the store because there's regulations, have snacks, meals, um, teas, herbs, whatever you need to support your healing and to support the process, have those prepared in advance. Um, have, you know, support, reach out to your friends also in a virtual way if you need some sort of support system for that. Now remember also that if you are sheltering in place and you're in a community where you can't go out and you know risk your health or the health of your family, you can still sit on the porch and get fresh air. You can still um, go outside and that makes a huge difference to your mental health. Now, it's a, I guess it's a cliche, sleep when the baby sleeps, but try to do that. One of the other things that can really help you is to keep your blood sugar steady. So if you are eating fast foods, make sure those foods are healthier foods, things that are more um, complex carbs and things that have fats in them. Keep yourself hydrated. And if at any point you feel that because of the isolation and because of the lack of social interaction and the ability for your mother, your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, whoever usually helped you, they can't come because of their risk. Um, then what you can do is you can actually have someone come to you even two weeks in advance of the birth. And that way there's absolutely no risk for that person because that time period has passed. And now that person is able to come and be your support. And there are specific, um, support systems out there for people who are going through the postpartum period during COVID. So take advantage of those as well. Okay, thank you, Rifki. Um, I just wanted to add something to that. Um, depending on your circumstances, um, every family is different, every community is different, the risk levels are different everywhere. Um, there's a lot of, um, obviously, a lot of serious concern regarding um, virus and everything surrounding it. But sometimes it's important to take a step back and be objective and to ask your own medical professionals for guidance in your specific situation. Maybe it makes sense for you in your situation to expand your social group to include your sister and her family or a close neighbor or friend who are both on the same um, risk level, who are both been quarantined for a while, and that maybe the kids can go to their house and they can cook for you. And you have at least one person that might be a very low risk situation, but can help you out. So try to think out of the box and not get stuck in like, I have no options. I'm totally stuck in this alone and overwhelmed because we don't want to come to that situation when we feel like we have no options. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mushki, for adding that. Um, I don't even remember who mentioned it, but someone mentioned an amazing uh, nightgown for the postpartum mother with nursing on Amazon. If you want to share that link with us, I will post it on the screen. Um, if you have the exact link to that nightgown, thank you, Rifki. Then if you could please uh, share it with us. Rifki, you also had mentioned the link with, um, with Earth Mama 
and maybe Frida. And I wasn't sure if it was links for specific items or just we want to mention those names again. So if you can clarify that, um, and then I'll post that as well. So that's about links. Okay. So the Frida Mom is actually um, the Frida Company and the Earth Mama Company. Those are two companies that deal with babies and mothers during this period. Um, and they're great ingredient items, very well sourced items, and they have a postpartum package, which is why I mentioned them, that if you feel like you don't want to put a, um, your own package together with the things that I mentioned, they actually have a package that's pre put together and you can order it. I'm pretty sure it's available on Amazon as well. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, what non-birth control options are there that can shorten your period when exclusively breastfeeding? Are there any non-birth control options to shorten your period? I'm not sure if this person who's asking the question is referring to shortening the bleeding postpartum or shortening the period. Or question was phrased as period. So take it either way. Um, there's a few things. Maybe I'll get points with Ricky for saying this one. Um, menstrual cup can shorten the length of the amount of time that you're bleeding um, just because it hurries up the process and you don't have that like lingering in the end. Um, another thing that could work um, for some people is taking bioflavonoids or um, really I should let Rufki take this one because she knows all these kind of things. It also, if it's a Tara issue, sometimes sending in those last few days of spotting or color, whatever it is, um, is worth it because it might not be need blood that's considered your period halakhically. So if that's an issue, that's also something to take under consideration that maybe it's not really red, red, and it's not really, um, nida, and you could already be in your clean days, even if it isn't clean, it's just clean of blood. So what I'm going to add to that is that every single person's really an individual. Um, so I encourage you to really reach out. Um, there are certain standard things, but they may not work for you. Um, sometimes the what you need to do is really, really as simple as rest. If you're going to Kingston Avenue to meet your friends, I don't know if you're, you know, going to do calisthenics with your kids because they're bored. I mean, I'm not sure why you would think that's a good idea, but people really have an internal need to really feel like they've bounced back. Pregnancy was hard and now I'm done. So I'm going to move ahead. So really take the time to really sit there and rest. And that's the single best thing that I can tell you aside for that. Reach out to someone who can guide you on a more personal level. Um, regarding the nightgowns, by the way, I'm going to post the links, but I'm going to give a disclaimer that you do have to adjust the neck. It should be a very simple fix for you to do, but I'm going to share the links anyways. I just want to add about uh, resting postpartum, that it's very important, even if you're feeling good and strong, to just rest as much as you can in certain ways. Um, about bouncing back, it took nine months to come to this point of pregnancy. And many people say it takes nine months or a year to get back. So this idea of bouncing back, I don't even like the term because you're never going back. You're going forward. We're always going forward. We don't want to look back at the good old days before. No, we're going to be a new person and growing and changing in a different way. So yeah, we work on ourselves in whatever way we can. And 
rest is very important. I love the line to nap while the baby naps and then also do laundry while the baby does laundry and, you know, clean the house when the baby cleans the house and all those things. Yeah, it's not so easy to rest, but that's why you want to get their support so that you're able to take care of yourself. Thank you. Um, another question, Rifki, you had mentioned that um, postpartum one shouldn't go to the mikvah um, by choice on Friday night. Can you elaborate as to the reason why? And someone also asked if she, it's already after the fact that she did it, is her mikvah still valid? So if you can please address both of those questions. So I was actually asked um, to recommend that you speak to your Ruff about that in particular. Um, if you've already done it, I, I think that that is out of my personal scope. <laughs> um, you would want to really speak to someone a lot more qualified, which would be your personal rev. Um, regarding postpartum mikvah, there are issues with um, Shabbos and mikvah, and therefore it's recommended that you do not push, do a pushed off mikvah on a Friday night. Um, if you would like more details other than that, that's something that you should discuss with your rev directly. Just want to add to that, bidiyavid. If it already happened, if it's after the fact, and you went to mikvah, you did a hefsek and you did seven clean days, and you went to the mikvah, you're tahar. Just, just putting that out there after the fact. Okay. There's also differences of opinion between rabbanim about this. So if it already happened, you have what to rely on. You're tahar, and no guilt needed. No guilt needed. Lechatchila. We're learning now, and there's things that you might be discovering, and in general, anything you heard in the class that sounds new or different, or you're not sure you did right in the past, now's your opportunity to learn more about it. You can reach out to one of us, ask for clarity, you can reach out to your Rav. In general, whatever we said over the last three classes, um, they're not just our thoughts and opinions. Mikvah.org is a very legitimate organization, and it's under the guidance of Rabbi Chaikin, and Rabbi Chaikin very carefully helps in preparing the content for the classes and reviewing everything. So if there's an issue, please bring it to our attention. Please um, reach out, get the clarity. Um, we're not just here to tell you things, but really to teach and guide from a place of halacha and the Chabad Hashkafa in general. Thank you, Mushki, for, for pointing that out. Yes, um, everything that Rifki and Mushki have, have said have sources. Um, if you needed to know the specific source of something that was said, um, it's not just opinions, there's some of it's hashkafa, halacha, minhag, but, but it's all sourced somewhere. Um, another question is, any tips on how to continue nursing when the mother is pregnant and nauseous and not keeping food down? So I guess another way to phrase this question would be, should someone continue nursing while pregnant and how far should they continue it based on their personal circumstances? Um, okay, so a few interesting facts regarding breastfeeding when you're pregnant. It is totally possible to breastfeed while you're pregnant. It is possible for you to breastfeed, um, tandem breastfeed, both a newborn and a potential toddler. However, that being said, there are a few things that are very important for you to keep in mind. On a purely physical level, um, your breast milk um, is going to change. Um, and your baby may not like it anymore. So they may self-wean if they're ready to do that. The second thing that is even more important, and I'm going to stress very, very strongly, your health in carrying a child, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's in the shell and bias of your home, if it's putting stress on that, comes first. 
So if you are struggling with it, take a step back. Ask yourself if this is good for the entirety of the picture or whether you are fixated on the fact that you have to breastfeed because that's what's best or if there are other options that may work better for your physical, emotional, and mental health in that particular situation. I just wanna to add to that, there's um, hierarchy of where the nutrients go um, when you're pregnant. And when you're pregnant, the baby that you're pregnant with gets the nutrients before the baby that you're nursing. So sometimes the quality of your breast milk changes and you might have to supplement regardless. And that's something to keep in mind if the baby's, you're struggling to nurse and the baby's losing weight or not gaining well, um, it doesn't mean there's a failure. It just means that biologically something happened. And yes, many people are able to continue nursing straight through and tandem nurse and all that. But some people, it doesn't work that way and they need a supplement and maybe they'll continue nursing for comfort nursing or drop it all together, however it works. But keep in mind that your situation is your situation and try to keep that objectivity. Speak to your child's pediatrician, speak to your OBGYN or a provider and try to keep in mind varying options and there's no one size fits all just because you heard that oh some people tandem nurse so therefore i should be or i have to be or anything like that thank you Mushki. another question um one woman writes you know once i got my first period postpartum at just about three months the milk supply went down do you have any suggestions or tips on how to keep the milk supply up or how to maintain the milk supply once you once your period returns um, I think that in each of these questions, I think you may want to have a lactation consultant. <laughs> this is this is fabulous. Um, push through. Um, your milk supply is going to change based on the hormones, so it may dip. But if you pass through that moment, um, it's supply and demand, so it's going to rise again. Um, it may your baby may be more fetchy you may have to give the baby some sort of supplementation if if the baby's really struggling etc but it will rise and you can build your supply up again once you are done your period okay thank you um another question is um how do i know after birth if my thyroid's giving me any issues or what i need to be aware of in regard to my thyroid health or what that could be causing um, okay, so there are a few things that are very important to um, note is that your thyroid can change postpartum. Um, that means that you can go into what's called a thyroid storm, you can go have, you know, a weaker thyroid. So it's important to keep in mind um, that that's something that needs to be evaluated by a um, provider. And I want you to be aware that that's something that if you feel that that you feel more sluggish than usual, or if you feel more hot than usual, or if you feel any significant changes within yourself, that's something that you want to bring up to your provider, because it may be something that is an indication of a thyroid issue. And that's something that your provider will address. Okay, great. That's actually has covered all of our questions that have come in. So um, I don't know if there's any concluding thoughts on your end, I'll give mine. Uh, my concluding thoughts are to thank you both for uh, being here tonight and to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram at mymikvah. Our next series actually begins next week. We're having a summer summer halacha learning series. We will have two weeks with Mrs. Bracha Stromberg on the practical applications of Hilfus Yechud and another two weeks 
uh, with Mrs. Hani Wolf on the power of modesty. And finally, the conclusion of our summer halacha learning series will be a second round of storytelling. We had so many wonderful stories that came in after our last storytelling hour that we're going to run it again. This time it will be exactly an hour. Um, if you still would like to submit a story, you're welcome to send it to me at 732-534-2948 or by emailing crifkin at mikvah.org. So those are my concluding comments. If there's anything else, Rifkir Moshki, that you'd like to add? Yeah, I always like to conclude. <laughs> um, so first of all, thank you so much, Hasi mikvah.org for this opportunity. And I'm really looking forward to um, listening to the other classes and not having to prepare them, but to listen and to learn and to enjoy. So I'm looking forward to tuning in um, every week. Um, Wednesday nights has really been a highlight during this whole Corona situation. So a lot of credit to Hasi for making this happen. And um, I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in, whether you're watching it live, whether you're watching it later, um, especially if you watched all three classes. Um, hopefully you gained um, a lot of knowledge and empowerment and food for thought and that you continue to research and make this a part of your life in um, growing your yourself and your knowledge regarding this really foundational aspect of being a married Jewish woman and hopefully bringing children into the world in a healthy, strong, and mentally sharp and halakhically and hashkafically on target manner. And you should have only good health always and lots of sedishinachas and shalom bias in your life. Um, so the last thing that I'm going to add is we're going to go back to the first class where Mushki and I talked about empowerment. So throughout this series, I hope that we really have encouraged you to empower yourself halachically, encouraged you to empower yourself hashkafically, encouraged yourself, encouraged you to empower yourself in every practical medical way as well. Because the more you educate yourself, the more you ask questions of those around you, um, you are going to be able to go through this process in the absolute best way possible. And like Mushki said, doing it in a way that is empowering is going to enhance your home, enhance your children, enhance um, the Shalom bias, and um, hopefully create a space that is your own beautiful Mikdash Ma'at, and we will bring Mashiach before the next Wednesday class. Thank you. <laughs> Amen, amen. Thank you both, and good night. Tune in next week, Wednesday, 8.30 at mikvah.org. Actually, I'm sorry, not mikvah.org forward slash live. Next week, we will actually be moving to Zoom uh, for those classes, so mikvah.org forward slash Zoom. Uh, if you uh, follow us on social media, you get the exact Zoom link, but if you can't remember it, that's fine. Go to mikvah.org forward slash Zoom, and the correct Zoom link will automatically open for you. Good night, everybody. Thank you.